Welcome everyone. Uh, today we have Sten Tampiki from Teleport. Now the story of Teleport is quite interesting because uh, Sten has got a background in, in having done a previous uh, startup. He's also Estonian and uh, he's got a very notable history that I want to explore. Uh, and then he was an EIR at Indusian Horowitz where we're actually sitting right now recording this. And then now he's starting again in, uh, in his path in entrepreneurial uh, adventures. And um, as you know, Sten, we'd love to start with a little bit about who you are as a person and your humble origins and, uh, or not so humble origins, it depends. I don't know what you studied. So wh where did you go to school and what did you study before you, you sort of took your first job? Yeah, thanks, Carlos, for having me. Uh, and uh, and uh, as a longtime fan and supporter of, of, of Seedcamp, actually, way before Teleport, then, then we're glad to be here and do this. So, as you said, I'm Estonian, born and raised, uh, was born into a country occupied by Soviet Union and kind of where, when I got out of high school, it was had become an independent republic. And sort of my going to school bit was basically collided into this sort of rebirth of a market economy in Estonia. So, so it, when I was 18, I was also caught by that bug. Uh, I entered Tartu University studying social sciences and communication theory and stuff like that, very much on the software side of life, being mm -hmm. a self-taught hacker before mm -hmm. I figured that I want to learn about why humans communicate on the internet and so forth, mm -hmm. because I already could code. And um, I started my first company at the same time. So mm -hmm. actually, as it happened, I, I dropped out uh, 18 months later and focused fully on the business and uh, haven't looked back. So you dropped out? I did. And in what, in sort of maybe, I know educational systems vary from country to country. What percentage of your education was loading before you quit? I, I think they kicked me out in the middle of my second year out of four. Okay. So I never, I still don't have a bachelor's degree. So years later, when I when I came here to Stanford, I actually um, had to start with my master's. Really? Yeah. That's hilarious. That well, we'll have come back to that. So so yeah. So you went and you started your company. What 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 was the first company? So the year was 1996, which you can think back of. It was the the first internet wave was still picking up. It was before it was being called a bubble. Mm. Everybody and their grandmother needed to get online. Um, they needed to have an email address and a web page address on the business card for the first time, mm -hmm. all that. So we decided that the best way to get into that game was to actually build web presence and multimedia kind of apps for other people. So mm -hmm. it was more more of a digital service agency. And over mm -hmm. time, we built some products like a content management system and some, some other things mm -hmm. that everybody was building at the time. But to provide a little bit of context, mm -hmm. because not everybody's familiar, obviously, with Estonia. I mean, we, we, we're a seed camp, love Estonian. We have several Estonian startups that we've invested in. But, uh, and I've loved visiting talent every time I go. But not everyone's been there. So maybe, maybe bring us back to what it was like there. I mean, for example, I know that right now you have the digital uh, identification cards that you sign things with. Um, and I know that Estonia is ahead of, of, of many countries in, in, in digital, but where was it at that time when you were building this company? Were you, were you like really cutting edge and therefore ahead of many other people? Or was internet penetration low? What, what was it like? The re-independence came in 91 and that was basically a clean slate. There was nothing as far as private enterprises go. If you if you think back, the Soviet Union being an entrepreneur was a criminal offense. Mm. So that was the background, okay. which meant that by the time I got out of high school in '96, um, everything in the last five years, everything had been created. It seemed, and you had like 
20, it's a country of 1.3 million people, mm-hmm. and there were probably like 20 or 30 banks where the CEOs were in the early 20s or whatever. Like it, it was like just a madhouse. Wow. And, and, uh, and every, no hierarchies, no glass or other ceilings, like everything was open and like this vibrant spring of capitalism. Like. And, and I think I came in more in the sort of second wave I'm entrepreneurs because frankly, looking back, I think it kind of felt that we missed the wave, like everybody was already doing the cool stuff. Yeah. But then again, all these early businesses were very traditional, mm. like they were, I don't know, sending stuff back and forth between East and West or building the banks and insurance companies and this infrastructure of the country or, or whatever, retail and, mm. and these things. So when I started Halo, which was the name of the company, then I think it was the first sort of internet company or the first digital media company in the country. And, and after that, the new wave of sort of this tech and software based companies started to come around. Mm. And how many people were you in that company? I think we grew to maybe 20 ish, a bit more. And then we got acquired quite early by DDB Worldwide, which yeah. is an advertising network. And then uh, we started growing even faster and trying to get some foreign clients. And then 99, 2000 came and it all went bust and the company went bankrupt. So, oh, it's, wow. okay. so I, I'm a college dropout and I've had an internet bankruptcy. So that's but my I mean, 90s. But it sounds like the bankruptcy wasn't really up to you at that point. I mean, the company, your company had been acquired. You were kind of under somebody else's direction. And then that company had issues. I was on the board. Uh, there was a new CEO. I was still very much involved in the company day to day, and so I I I. Hey man, I was giving you an out. Yeah, okay. but <laughs> I I think it's it's actually one of those things like very often you and I have talked as well yeah. is that the the amount of risk taking in Europe and sort of how the society looks at if you fail yeah. is way different than it is in Silicon Valley, for example. Yeah, and. I looking back at that, having going through a bankruptcy in your early twenties, it feels like the life is over. Yeah, and and I really, really suffered and struggled with that. Even yeah. though it was like I was, yeah, kind of not the guy in the company mm. anymore, maybe, but but still, it's it's a life experience. And right now, I can look back and see the value of having that experience early on. And uh, at the time, it was really, really painful. Yeah, but if we, if we go back to those years and we assume that we remove the bubble, which affected everyone for various reasons, mm-hmm. and we just look at sort of the operational mistakes and the lessons learned from those, what would you, what would you highlight as the operational lessons that you look back and you're like, crap, man, that was a, such a newbie mistake. What, what would you say are the things that you wish you had done differently, which had there not been a bubble would have probably been problems anyway? I think the overarching theme was that we were super reactive to everything. Like a client walks in and asks for X, we build X. And then the client walks in and asks for Y, we do Y. And then that last client says that, hey, actually, we're going to, like, we don't have much money, but for the fund of it, we still engage and build that. Or like there was a lot of this sort of opportunism and, and sort of, there was no strategy really. There was re- reacting to this massive demand that was building up. So I think there were probably a few inflection points where we should have decided what we actually want to do, what kind of company we want to build, what kind of people do we need for that and do this sort of forward looking planning. But it was like billing hours, serving whoever looked like an interesting thing to do. Um, so probably the lack of foresight, lack of forward planning, mm-hmm. lack of sort of this bigger picture besides that, hey, we're young, we do software, we're going to do cool stuff. Like those, I think 
compared to the businesses I've been involved in uh, later, this was very much more a club of friends doing stuff together mm. rather than a proper business. So. Mm. Well, I mean, you do want to be with people you enjoy working with, so yeah. I, you know, it's it's always a good thing. But so, what happened afterwards? And you know, obviously, the, the market affected the company went bankrupt. What what what? When you were at that lowest point, what was going on in your head? What what was like the next thing that popped in? So, as one of the co-founders, I still felt very obliged for for figuring out how to land the team. So there was a lot of sort of juggling to make it as pain, take as much pain out for as possible for everybody involved and sort of wrap things up as nicely as, as you can. Mm. Um, as part of that, we ended up, uh, me and a, a few other people on the team actually moved as a team or, or were picked up by one of the Estonian software houses. And so I, I went from being sort of this CEO and then a board member uh, uh, of, a, of a startup or a young company, I went into a much larger software company and started as a sort of a team lead and doing like usability consulting and very hands on consultant stuff and, yeah. and still working on digital projects. Um, and there, I stayed there for a few years, um, I think four years there, and, and became a board member there. It was doing more like corporate BD kind of stuff, working with enterprise clients, wearing a suit, like all very different lifestyle, I would say. Yeah. Um, but since that first company, I've always had um, uh, the later, the founders and founding engineers of Skype used to be my clients since my first company. So there were there was a project called everyday.com before Kazaa and Jolted and Skype and all mm-hmm. these other things. So I had been working with some of those guys and several people from my first company ended up joining those companies mm-hmm. in the process. So, so all this, like Skype from outside looks like it was one of the, came out of the blue and conquered the world. But yeah. actually, I think it's a classic story of a serial entrepreneurship on behalf of Nicholas and Janos and, and the Blue Moon engineers who were there. So um, in 2005, when Skype was about 18 months old, then I made the jump and joined Skype as going from serving a client to actually joining the company full time. Yeah. And what was that relationship like? I mean, obviously, you knew some of these people, you know, Nicholas and... But how, what was that like? It was like because eighteen months, it's already a, a steam engine with some speed. So, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What was that like? What was the role? What was the, the sort of the the desire there? And, and and how did you land in? So, Toivo Annos, who was the first head of engineering and one of the founding engineers, um, also a friend and uh, and uh, we had worked in the past uh, together, was at the time. It was getting to a point. I think Estonia was probably between 50, 50 and 100 people, maybe. And it was already a rocket ship. It was obvious, like it was adding hundreds of thousands of users. And, and um, uh, Toivo was there and Tavet uh, used to work for me in my first company. So Tavet from TransferWise, another yeah. seed camp company, by the way. Yeah, and a uh, and great friend. Um, so we were uh, already hanging out and they were telling what they're up to. And, and uh, at some point Toivo wanted me to come in and take this sort of admin stuff over from him so he could focus on the engineering bit. Um, which in that sense meant, I felt like, it felt like a startup CEO job again. It's like, okay, do we need HR? How many people are joining this week? Oh, I need two tables, let me put them together. <laughs> oh, we actually should have an accountant. Like, oh, which legal entity is that? We should create one. Like, like, like uh-huh. all these sort of things uh, that I did 
kind of on the Estonian level, but because so much of the activity was in Estonia, Niklas had just moved to London and there was a team growing there, maybe a few dozen people at the time. Um, but it was it was very much like, as in, in any startup, like any, everybody does everything that needs to get done. Yeah. And then uh, later that year, in the fall, eBay acquired Skype, so that was the first big acquisition. And after that, my roles became more global. So I was I was running the operations for the company, and uh, at some point, I had the the sites and servers and security and all this sort of sort of things uh, under my responsibility on a global basis. And then I realized that I actually want to get more back to the product because of my sort of software roots. And then mm-hmm. I was doing. Uh, Windows and Mac and Linux product management and engineering and other sort of product leadership mm-hmm. kind of roles. So, so I always had this combination of the Estonian office and local stuff and mm-hmm. something global. So by the time I left Skype, I, the Estonian office had grown to from this scrappy little startup-like thing into mm-hmm. 400 plus people. So that was a, a big thing in itself. So, so if we look at the two roles that you had, um, one during Skype and one before it, um, where you went from employee to board member, and then in Skype as you know an employee in month 18 to uh, an employee who is now you know key in the growth of the company what were the the sort of managerial lessons that you had learned from the first company obviously it failed you know being aboard of a company and then also then switching to this role of of a fast growing lots of hires what were the key lessons that you think founders should keep in mind there i think one thing that i'm still learning for sure, is that sort of scaling, zooming in and out. Mm. Like when you're in the trenches, when you're doing stuff, when you're serving a client, when you're building software, when you're sort of shipping for next Friday, like that sort of level of things, then then like uh, you need to make your hands dirty, you need to be there no matter what the hours, like, like that's the, being in the middle of action. Then as a company grows, then uh, or you, you go from an operational role to a board member role, then you need to be able to detect what's the appropriate level to zoom out to. And first, it's for your own sake, because you cannot be involved in everything. But secondly, if you hire great people or, or have great people working with you, then if you constantly keep fiddling in their stuff, then uh, then uh, they are not happy either. They don't feel like trusted and they can't do. So so as you're on in this growth story, like how do you actually get out of the business, but at the same time, don't get too far out of the business because you still yeah. have a role. Like uh, um, you can't manage a team effectively or you can't hire or fire the people right if you don't know what they're actually up to or how they're performing. So setting up this like processes and systems and, and figuring out how to do that on a hands-off distance and that for example that skype uh, there were several times where i felt that i went for example too far like you have a small team you give them a lot of space then something breaks down and you realize oh i don't know what's actually underneath this yeah this this problem um so americans have lots of phrases for that like <laughs> having skin in the game and like, like there's, a, there, there's some truth in that yeah and the you know that that decision point between going too far and giving too much freedom and then micromanaging, you know, as you said, is a tough one to balance. But how did um, leadership work at Skype? Like, how, how did it work in terms of uh, a stated vision that you understood and that you could then communicate for new employees that you were onboarding? One of the secret sources behind the Skype story, for sure, is that how well 
what we were building for the users and what was the vision of the product and what, what, what the Nicholas and Janos and the founding engineers came up with, how well that aligned with sort of the vision and the culture inside the company. Like Skype virtually didn't use email because everybody was using chats. And Skype uh, organization structure over time kind of mimicked the product technical architecture. We were building a peer-to-peer -peer network. Ergo, there was no, n none of the sort of hard hierarchical structures ever struck uh, because it was a peer-to-peer -peer network inside. There were always some islands of nodes of people who worked very well together and others that didn't, and then they shifted around and there were some super nodes that maintained all the information. And, and this very funny way how an organization started to look like the product. And if these things are so aligned, like everybody uses the product every day, lives the product, kind of we, we, we spread to 10 offices around uh, all 10 time zones when we had just 200 mm -hmm. people. Like all these things happened because of the product and the product happened because of the, those people and those organizations. So I, I think there was a very, in the early years, there was very close alignment to why we're there, what we're building, why people joined. Um, and we could always, like later on when we grew to like hundreds and maybe 500 plus people, and the first time we surveyed actually mm. uh, why people are at Skype. Like they always very consistently said, what I do matters and uh, I, I love the people I'm, I'm here with. Mm. And it varied between sort of offices a bit and tenure of people and later it became more generational, but all this sort of first 300, 500 people always were, felt very, very strongly about these things. Hmm. That's great. I mean, it sounds like there was a, a, a good transmission there oh, yeah. of, of vision. And for you um, at this point, Right towards the end of your time at, at Skype, how old were you? Ooh, uh, so I left Skype two years ago now, oh, and wow. I just turned 37. And, and how many of those years had you moved, and where had you moved to? So you were in Estonia, and then you moved to London, was it? Yeah, so I had my base in Estonia for, for most of the time. And then what happened was that when you're in this fast-growing organization, every time you inherit some, some team or, or start working with a new group of people, then one thing that I learned is that you can build relationships face-to-face -face and then you can maintain them over video calls. Yeah, We built a lot of software for video calls, so, so that part was covered, but you still need to have FaceTime. So every time I started working with a new part of the organization, I had to, to, to get to know new people, then I actually picked up my family and moved. Mm -hmm. So I've spent two stints, like a few months each in London. And by that, I mean that you actually go there, you actually rent an apartment, you actually have the coffee in the park in the yeah. weekend, you actually do the pub nights. You, like, it's much different than going there for two weeks in a hotel. Mm. And then, uh, then at some point when we consolidated a lot of our Asia-Pacific activities uh, to Singapore and made that the Asian H APAC HQ for, for Skype, then at some point I was talking to Dan Neary. He actually, he now runs uh, Facebook in APEC. So, mm. so a very well-versed guy in, in working from Asia with, with uh, US and European counterparts. But he was telling me that, hey, um, we, uh, we have this new 20 people here and we really don't know whom to call with problem X or Y in mm. Tallinn or London. So I just picked up my family and I moved there for a few months just to be in that office. So I kept mm. doing what I did, but I just was there. So if anybody mm. had something to sync with Europe, mm. then, then I could help them out, mm. um, which I, I really love that experience mm. as well. And going out to the Asian partners and Asian, Asian other offices we had in, mm. in, uh, in uh, we had good partners in Taipei and we had mm. an office in Tokyo and so the, that was a lot of, lot of fun and hopefully helpful for, for that part of the org as well. 
And then uh, I came here uh, to California for Stanford uh, three years ago. Yeah, and it, that was it was a funny decision. I remember the time you were thinking about it. And um, in case you're wondering why I'm asking you, where you're moving around, you know where I'm going with that. But um, curious though, you were in a fast-growing organization. You had already made these transitions, and then you say, "Hey, I want to go for a, you know, I want to go back to school." What was that about? Because a lot of founders are probably thinking, like, "Do I need to go back to school? Is is this something that's necessary?" Some people are very flippant about uh, uh, sort of formalized entrepreneurship education or any kind of business education. What was your take on that? Right. So my take was after five or six years, I felt that I need to take some time off. It was it, it was fun but exhausting. And the company had changed owners for a few times. We had uh, we had the eBay plans, uh, eBay acquisition. Then there were IPO plans. Then before the IPO, the, the, we actually I, we had filed the S one, and it would, would have been really fun to experience that. Mm. But then there was the investor group led by Silver like that, and Andreessen and Horowitz and mm. some other people that bought Skype out or stake of Skype. The uh, eBay phase. Yeah. Then eBay sold a stake to Silver Lake Lead Consortium. Then we had the IPO plans, and then those fell through. And then, like all these changes, and uh, there was some period where we had, uh, in four months, we had three CEOs, and and like at some point, I just felt that I need to step aside a bit and think about things. And like some people take a sabbatical yeah. and go to Southeast Asia and lie on the beach, yeah. and I figured that okay, actually going to school, and some of my friends had done that uh, already. Uh, kind of encouraging me that it's yeah. a good idea, I decided to go for that. And plus, as I mentioned, I was a dropout before, so I had, hadn't yeah. graduated really anything. You had that thing, you wanted to yeah. get out of your yeah. system. And my, my, both my dad and my grandfather are PhDs in physics, so, yeah. so I come from that sort of family. You had the peer pressure, you had the peer pressure. Yeah, they didn't say anything, but it was like growing up, I always knew that that's the normal thing that people yeah. do. But how, I mean, how was that, um, for you because to some extent you you had moved your family around quite a bit right at that point you had already done quite a bit of traveling in Asia you done Estonia and now California and um, if you don't mind me sort of prodding here a bit one of the things that um, has come up sometimes with founders uh, especially uh, founders in Europe um, has been this debate whether or not you move to the valley, especially if the company benefits from receiving funding in the valley, right. and um, it's the debate because you know some people have family, uh, some people have you know aging parents that they want to take care of. Sometimes they have mortgages, or they just you know a, a wife or, or a partner or a husband has uh, a job that they need to give up. And and you know you hear the advice when you come to speak to investors here, they're like move to the valley. Why? Because the customers are here, or because the partners are here, or because you know, the, the customers that, that then introduce you to the investors are here. And it's very hard to swallow. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you've moved around and, and you seem to have prioritized, you know, a specific part of your life uh, when you made those choices. But maybe, you know, as an inspiration to, to founders out there who are con contemplating this, and, you know, we'll talk a little bit about what Teleport does, but um, people that are contemplating this life decision, um, should, you, should it be something that is job first, life second? Is, is there a happy balance there? How, how did you go through that process? How did you involve your family? And, and how, did, how do you have seen other people manage it? Right, I think there are different, like a few groups of scenarios, mm -hmm. like, um, like are you a founder or employee? And there are different answers to that. Are you a 22 year old uh, going solo or are you a family person already? Yeah. So in my particular case, First of all, I'm married, I have three kids. Now, 
but at the time we were making those moves, we already had two kids. Um, I'm really lucky to be on the same wavelength with my wife regarding these things. And she's a journalist by profession. So, so even when we move around, she's actually able to, to uh, write wherever. And actually, funny enough, if you're in the U.S. on a press visa, you can't work for U.S. media. You have to work for media outside. So, so while we've been here, for example, she's been, besides uh, taking a lot of time for the kids here, yeah. uh, she's also been, she wrote the book on California and, and has been reporting to some Estonian media about the mm -hmm. events here and so forth. So that sort of combination has worked quite well. The kids' constraint is interesting because... Uh, uh, when you have the kids, uh, I think the, one of the best times to travel actually is when the kids are about 18, 24 months old. And then you have this window that starts closing until they're seven and they have to go to school. And now, so there was a few years going to London, going to Singapore, a few months, easy, like just you miss kindergarten for two months, like so what? Uh, now, I think our life has switched a bit more towards, okay, we think in a school year increments. Yeah. So the kids have started the elementary school here and then we stay here for the sort of the winter season and then we spend most of the summer in Europe and then every year we evaluate where do we want to have the base the next year. But, but we're still both, and actually our, our kids as well, all of us uh, really appreciate this sort of lifestyle. Or when, we, when we asked our kids when they're a few years old, um, uh, where is home? And their answer is the home is where the family is. So like they have, I think they're, they're truly, I, I think we kind of joke that we, we're growing them to be global Estonians. Like they know what Estonia is, they, they really appreciate the roots and some of the quirky characteristics that come with those. Uh, but at the same time, they are able to think uh, how, how people I think should be thinking in modern society where, where, um, where um, like tolerance and empathy and understanding different cultures and surviving in different communication situations, these things come very naturally for them. So to look back to your question, um, all of those arguments, I would say that, that this already answers that it's not like for work or for family question, it's like a combination really beneficial for, for both of them. I think my family has gotten a lot out of that. We've become much stronger as a unit actually, I think through that every environment change it pulls you closer together with them and at the same time professionally there is no doubt that what i've been able to do at stanford what this sort of time at Andreessen Horowitz as an eir gave to me um what sort of getting teleport off the ground and closing the funding and all these things have have contributed being in the valley at those moments has been the right thing mm. but i always at the same time it for me definitely the answer is that have you moved to the valley now mm. uh, I think it's it's an old school question to ask. There is no such thing as a permanent move, and it's much more about those sort of managing the portfolio of locations and deciding how much time do you spend in different places and mm -hmm. how do you structure your life legally and visas wise and taxis wise and schools wise and all that. So, so uh, this is what we're hearing now. When especially when when I landed here as an EIR, I became like a go-to person for many European entrepreneur friends who were contemplating these things. Mm -hmm. And through many of those conversations, the outcome always was that, okay, it's not an either or, should you move it or not? It's like, okay, should you be in the valley a week, a quarter? Should you be in the valley for two months a year in a chunk? Like, what are the things you need to do here? What are the other cities you need to be in because you might have clients there? 
where should you hire engineers? Okay, now you have four locations. How do you split the time between them? Uh, and this is a much more relevant set of questions than the binary, should you move or not? Yeah. And, um, you know, for, for people who are sort of considering this, um, part of what Teleport does is help with that. So maybe this is a good opportunity to sort of jump around a little bit, but, but maybe to talk a little bit about kind of how the, the evolution of Teleport and the idea that you're working on right now, and, and we'll come back to sort of uh, what happened after Stanford and your time at Andreessen in a bit. But, um, you know, I grew up, um, for those of you that, that don't know this, I, I grew up um, moving around a lot myself. Uh, my, my, my family moved around to Venezuela and to Thailand, a couple other places. And I didn't feel like my education was affected. And my parents did a great job of, of sort of making sure that I, they, they moved at different intervals. But I think that's changing quickly, you know, like, um, and, and opportunities are global. And a lot of people are having to move sometimes within a city for various different costing reasons, but sometimes internationally for the same reasons that you moved. And you, you probably referenced your own life a lot when you came up with this idea of teleport, but maybe you can tell us a little bit about kind of the thinking uh, of your experiences and how it shaped teleport and what teleport is and the services that it brings to, to really help founders perhaps that are considering a move as part of an expansion or part of a funding run. Exactly. So this is exactly what teleport does and why it exists is to, we want to help people to discover and execute their next move. So. There are two important bits of that. What we discovered when we started researching uh, is that there is the informational problem. Where should you be? Given who you are, what do you want to do? Do you have family? Do you have kids? What's your income level? Are you going to keep the job you have right now and do it remotely? Or do you need to find a local job? Uh, what's your visa situation? Like all of those things layered on top of each other is one person's requirements. And then the requirements of other people, like what does your wife or husband need? Do your kids need something? Where are your clients? Where are your team members? So there's a lot of synchronization with other people. So it becomes this infinitely complex optimization problem that you, you need to solve. And we can really, really solve that with software. So the, the thing, I think the macro trend or the massive trend that has happened is that over this last decade or two, uh, your income has become increasingly less tied to location. So you can, more and more people can do whatever they do anywhere or in a certain number of time zones or whatnot. Yeah. At the same time, your cost is still super fixed to your location. So your, for an average person, the amount of volume of money that you will see in your lifetime, 70% of those uh, dollars or euros or, or other currencies go to two things. It's primary residence and taxes. 70%. So like, like, uh, a third of the money you see is, is for this disposable stuff, but you can impact the 70% by just changing your X and Y coordinates on the map. Mm. And this is super powerful, especially for entrepreneurs. Because if you imagine that you're starting a company and you raise a half a million dollar or a million dollar seed uh, round right now, yeah. being one hour flight in a different place could mean that your runway changes by six months. Or if you look at here in San Francisco Bay Area with all the startup activity, here you can change your commute by 30 minutes a day and uh, save $25,000 a year. So by changing the commute uh, by 30 minutes, you might save like $25,000 a year. Yeah. And especially for entrepreneurs in the sort of early stage where cash is king and you need to preserve it, it's super important to make the right decisions there. 
Now that's the discover part, where should you be? And then once you know where you should be, there is all this hassle that I've suffered personally is is how do you actually get there? Where do you get the visa? Where do you rent a place? Who will actually give you advice on this other insurance thing? And where do you go to a doctor? Like all, all these things. And both of the sides, discovering the move and executing the move, are something that we believe is you can automate and fix a lot of those things in software. So coming from the Skype background where we were kind of metaphorically making the world a smaller place, now we're trying to actually move physical people around. Yeah. So no, I mean, that, that's great. It sounds like uh, a lot of the things that uh, founders struggle with in terms of decision making in, in maybe analysis paralysis or paralysis through analysis, um, you're trying to solve whether that be lifestyle, whether that be cost uh, reduction. So for, for those founders that are considering this, Teleport um, is, a, is the service you need to be checking out. Um, Seedcamp, full disclosure, is also an investor. And Andreessen Horowitz is also an investor. Uh, but an interesting thing was that uh, before uh, you did Teleport, you were also an EIR at Andreessen. So maybe you can share a little bit about the time that you spent at Andreessen, uh, but also the the sort of the, the lessons you learned there that shaped how you were going about this particular venture, as opposed to the ones that you worked in before. And the EIR period at Andreessen Horowitz was was I think it came just the right time. I had just graduated uh, Stanford. I decided that I will not return to Skype. We had an agreement that I take an academic break and when I graduate, we talk with them first. Uh, We had the conversation, decided that there wasn't a good uh, good match at that moment. And uh, then I wasn't sure because I I have been an entrepreneur before, a founder before and an executive before. Mm. I was not tilted towards either of those. So how I framed the question, what do I want to do next was that uh, uh, I probably want to be, I don't care if I'm the first guy in, third guy in, fifth guy in, 10th, maybe 20th, but probably not to 100th. Mm. So like early stage, but agnostic to founder versus like early joiner. Mm. So being an EIR at the top firm means that you're in the middle of a flow. Like everything that goes through Sandy Hill Road is some, like everything you will read on TechCrunch three months later. Yeah. So being able to join pitch meetings and see the deal reviews and sort of engage with other founders and see what they're doing. And at the same time, having this free form format, like EIR is not the job. It basically means what it says that you're an entrepreneur, but you just happen to be in residence, like yeah. a medical student would be in a, in a hospital. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, that meant that I could carve out, okay, this week I'm going to see those three bit pitches and, uh, and then carve out like four hour block to put away the computer and phone and think. Yeah. And, and so Teleport was clearly an idea that came from that process. Uh, after seeing things and after listing my own ideas, I listed, I think in October, that human migration is broken, that I should yeah. do something, look something into that. Then I met my one of my co-founders, Balaji Srinivasan, uh, who was a board partner here. Yeah. And we started chatting about it. Uh, he had his views about where the world is going with with uh, communities forming in the cloud and occasionally materializing on, on Earth. Then we realized that, oh, if we build something that solves my immediate problems, then actually it will build the world that Balaji has been thinking about. Mm-hmm. Let's get together and build this thing. And then I turned to Silver uh, Keskula, who is who's our third co-founder, uh, also an early Skyper and a research engineer who has built a lot of optimization around the core routing in peer-to-peer network mm. and this machine learning around that. So mm. all this optimization stuff fit for him very well, plus he's lived in six countries. So, he so related. all these things came together. So I had the first note of the idea in October. In December, I said no to two other teams I was talking to about potentially joining. Uh, and by Christmas, I was sitting in 
Hawaii running a logo competition because all of my uh, on 99 designs because all of my friends uh, designers were saying that yeah let's talk in January but I was already so pumped up that I couldn't wait so so when it happens it happens super quickly and I stayed with Andresen Horowitz until uh, May but after that I didn't see a single other pitch I didn't really meet any other companies I was fully already building teleport and and we consider April 1st the birthday so we just had a birthday yesterday our first one wow congrats congrats Thank you. Um, and that's really exciting and you know the, the the process of building a company now um, with those lessons. Um, what what are you doing differently now that you would have perhaps not done differently had you not gone through that hair process? I think it's a luxury to take the time you need to sort through a bunch of ideas. So I feel that Teleport now is a company that I'm proactive about. Uh, I found the right problem that I'm passionate about. It's big enough that anybody coming out from a story like Skype or Facebook mm -hmm. or Google or all this, you always have this urge that where do you find something else that gives you this other shot of this adrenaline, yeah. adrenaline serving like millions and hundreds of millions of users. Uh, it's like you want to build something again where people come up to you on the street and thank you for it. Yeah. So I think Teleport qualifies. Like I, I think this can go that big. I've met the right people because of kind of the location and being mm. in the right group and information flow. Um, the fundraising was way different than it would have been in Europe at the same time. Um, so, so many upsides, many benefits, absolutely grateful for, for that opportunity. And I think it has, like as the media now writes that it's a yeah. teleport is like Andreessen Horowitz incubated company, even though it, it's not an incubator, there is some truth in that. Yeah. Um, now going from here when you already start building the company now i've realized that okay my age as being a european founder in silicon valley in this sort of phase in the history of valley where you can get the team of five people to work for you for a million dollars like mm. like it's just sky everything is skyrocketing the sort of movement of people is so fast the competition is so heavy um, I think now it's time for me to play more on the strengths of being a European founder. Mm. So the early team of Teleport, the first five, the first eight people are, are between five countries and most of them are in Europe. Um, like the old Skype network is very supportive to all other new Skype founders. So there's mm. a lot of conversation, a lot of early testers, a lot of ideas are moving there. And, uh, and I think a lot of the activity now actually building the product is, is outside of the valley. So again, coming back to the earlier point, it's, it's now how do I find a good balance of how much time do I spend here? How mm. much time do I spend Europe and where is it going to be? How much is it going to be Tallinn and maybe some other locations? Mm. So, I mean, it sounds to me like the, the elements that were to some extent challenging early in your life really became the inspiration for, for Teleport. And so I'm really excited to see where you take this and, and obviously uh, Andreessen, I'm, I'm sure, is as well, and Seedcamp is too, um, to see how you can change that um, and and really help improve people's lives and founders' lives. But we always like to wrap things up with uh, an ability for you to shamelessly plug anything you want. Uh, of course, you can always shamelessly plug Teleport, but um, but perhaps there's other causes or, or other thoughts that you might want to share. Yeah, of course, everybody should already by now should have done what they did Teleport mobile app that we released on Monday. So I'll plug something else. Uh, I think one thing living abroad and living uh, 
not just living your personal life, but also trying to to register a company and work with the local governments and all these things. It has just made me appreciate more how well some of those things have just how easy it is just to be a good citizen in in other parts of the world. And I think Estonia especially is is very well um, sort of ahead of that, sort of the mm. digital signatures and this sort of natural flow of getting everything done. It's way easier for me to sit in Palo Alto and bank in Estonia than it is to bank in US. Like nice. it's light years. So my plug would be for the Estonian e-residency where you can get an ID card uh, without being physically in Estonia or without being an Estonian citizen and get access to these digital services. Mm. I think just this week they started rolling it out that now you can get it from the embassies, that you don't even have to travel to Estonia. Mm. So I think people should check that out. Check that out and perhaps roll that out across different countries where, where entrepreneurship could change the economies. Or because Estonia is in EU, you can set up your entity there and do business across EU. You don't have to have it in every country in EU. <laughs> I want to become an honorary Estonian citizen. You should. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, with that, thanks, uh, Sten, for joining us. And uh, uh, we'll see you guys later. Thank you. Bye.